Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and today's guest is Dr. Chen Yang Shu, who is currently the president and co-chairman of PV Med Technologies. He was formerly GM and CTO of Siemens Technology to Business, where he led the Siemens Technology Startup and Early Stage Investment Practice out of Silicon Valley. This is just a small sampling of the many impressive things Dr. Shu has done in his career. I had a very inspiring and mind-expanding conversation talking to him. Here we get good perspective from a veteran who has looked at over 10,000 companies on what the future may look like for medicine and AI. I hope you enjoy. Well, hi, Chen Yang. Thank you so much for coming on to today's show. I was wondering, this is the first question that we ask every guest. Can you tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Uh, it's my pleasure to be uh, on this show. And uh, uh, I... Myself, you know, it's kind of interesting. So I think the origin story was always about when I was seven years old and uh, my dad, you know, I grew up in the Northwest part of mainland China. It's more like a North, North Dakota of US. And so it's hard to travel back in the seventies. So my dad actually, uh, she, he actually came from Shanghai area. So he got to go back home, you know, every few years. And mm -hmm. at seven years old, he bought back uh, uh, basically a kit that is uh, wood made uh, parts that you can build a little airplane okay and uh but it doesn't have instructions so long story short so he gave it to me and uh, i actually was uh, just uh addicted to try to make it work and uh um and and i spent like uh two days um trying errors and glue them together too much glue it doesn't fly you know too less glue it's not you know so either way but eventually i made it work and i was able to launch this airplane outside uh, it stayed on the air for over a minute. I mean, it oh, was wow. liberating. It was the most magical thing I ever imagined up to then. Because before I'd fly paper plane, and I was very good in building paper plane. But when I had this wooden plane, you know, launched in the air, it's there's a feeling of freedom, uh, liberation, but also there was a sign of conquering. Uh, so, so in a sense, in today's world, I'm a maker, right? So. A long, long story short, so uh, that really have launched me interest into science and figure out how to put things together and and really, really make it fly. Yeah. So and then a whole uh, minute it was flying. Yeah, over a minute on the air. Yeah. Did you yeah, have to like? Was it like a rubber band? Like launch it? Yeah, rubber band. You launch it because this wood is more heavy. It can fly pretty high. Um, in fact, there's a bigger wooden plant. They also have some. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, that can be launched into the sky, hovering for even longer, much longer. Mine's mm -hmm. a little bit smaller one, but still, it's wow. way better than the air, uh, the paper airplane. So. And just curious, what part of northwestern China? Uh, in Chuan, um, Chinese name may not you know ring a bell for mm -hmm. folks in you know Western audience, but uh, the translation is actually related. You know, it's like Silver Valley. So here we are in Silicon Valley. Silver it's oh, Silver Valley. Okay, wow. Yeah. Yeah. The North Dakota of China. I've never heard of Yeah. <laughs> never yeah. heard of that. So cool. So as we continue your story. Yeah. So so then the second piece was I fall in love with computer back in 84. Again, I think there was a sense of luck, right? You know, you need to do the right timing. Uh, the majority of China kids have never touched a computer. You know, how could a kid in North Dakota of China get experience of the computer? That has to thank the United Nations that they made a donation. Oh, wow of the Apple II and uh, uh, two Apple II to China. And they said they should go to frontiers, you know, far away. And they landed somehow in my province and land my city. 
And then my uh, uh, school uh, was the top school in that city. So somehow nobody knows how to deal with the computer. I had a little bit of sense uh, when my father was a you know, biochemistry professor. So I knew how to program on the Casio calculator back then. It can be programmable. Uh, so, uh, and uh, my master's is the top in the class. So the teacher said, why don't you take care of you know, these computers and then see how it works. There's and one so Apple II computer. <laughs> Yeah, Apple II computer. Yeah, two. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I started a club with the support of the teacher. Uh, and then I got, you know, at that time we played games through a tape recorder. There's no even uh, a floppy drive for those who remember. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a lot of fun times. So I played a lot of games and also wrote a lot of programs for things my uh, uh, basically seventh grade all the way to 10th, 11th grade in China. Uh, so I was really into the computer. And then uh, from there, uh, another story, my, because my father's professor, he gave me a book, you know, at that time, before I applied college, he said, okay, look at all the majors, choose what you want. I looked at everything, China was terrible with marketing, so everything read like you were being sent to a mountain or frontier, you know, uh, whether it's uh, <laughs> math, physics, and, uh, uh, you know, those are my favorite courses, yeah, I just sound so boring, and and then the double E was no good, computer science also looks terrible, like you go around a piece of equipment. But the only thing I know computer, if I go to computer science, at least I can play games. So I have my secret missions, at least my, if everything bombed, at least I wouldn't feel bored. So I chose computer science. Uh, and then uh, again, another luck strike is at my third year, it's a five year program. Uh, and uh, uh, I, my school actually, my university, uh, Universal Science Technology of China, it's more like a Caltech in China. Uh, and then the, has a, a massively parallel uh, a neural network center uh, of the national center. And so the, 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 the professor there is very well known. So I got into that uh, laboratory to start research early in my undergraduate. So I spent three years in that lab and then I got to know neural network. Was uh, in the nineties? Yeah, in the uh, 1990, 1990 to 1993. Oh, wow. So I did I didn't my know undergraduate thesis were... in that wow. space. It was very lucky. I didn't know so neural networks like were one lead to another, right? Wow. So how could they imagine a kid come from North Dakota of China ended up can hit all this, uh, you know, information technology revolution, like uh, pinpoints, right? And eventually step-by-step. Step, uh, and then I have my thesis, did the neural network, um, you know, uh, computing uh, on eight computers uh, and uh, three, three layers. And I really like it. But at that time it was the AR winter, you know, you really couldn't find a job. People think it was toy. Uh, so I thought go something more practical. Uh, I want to come to America. Uh, so I was able to, luckily, and got a full scholarship to uh, Johns Hopkins University and double electric and computer engineering um, and uh, in uh, image analysis and pattern recognition for medical imaging. Uh, so that combined my background interest as wow. well, you know, get to, into the medicine. So that was the history. And then, the, then from history. there, mm -hmm. launched my career. And uh, now I am where I am. So that's a little bit of backstory. Very few people know about it. Wow. Wait, so with the phd was that in the late 90s that you were doing um medical imaging uh wow i didn't wow i, I didn't even realize you know in the 90s people uh that, that there was this kind of uh you know pattern recognition like neural networks this kind of yeah. research going on around that yeah 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 in fact uh, at hopkins was really fascinating hopkins was, uh, was the first research university you know ahead of anyone actually um, and uh, the interdisciplinary of uh, science engineering together with medicine is so strong 
uh, it's building the DNA. And then I was really given, I mean, coming like from China to US, US, you know, at that time in 1993, you know, this library full of books, you know, cutting edge, and, you know, uh, all the journals, the professor are fantastic, encourage you to really interact with each other and learn. Um, and then it just uh, really opened up my mind a big time. It was a very explosive time for me in quest of knowledge and discovery. And I was lucky to have, I mean, I would call the best PhD advisor ever. And he, he's uh, one of the early pioneers in CT uh, three-dimensional you know, imaging reconstruction. Then he was one of the co-inventor of uh, uh, really putting tagging into the, through the MRI into the heart so that you can see in vivo how the heart muscles are behaving oh, and diagnosing wow. even problematic oh. things, which traditionally you don't see it's like a uniform muscle, but that's yeah. tagging as a temporary thing. And it was a huge invention that he was one of key inventor. So, and then also in the nineties was the decade of brain uh, back declared by the white house. Uh, and uh, it was uh, considered a frontier that we know little. Uh, so I was very lucky my professor got a grant um, and uh, in brain imaging together with the Hopkins Neuroimaging Lab. And therefore I was tasked to basically invent computer vision pattern recognition algorithms that can take MR image at that time. And computers, uh, you know, I would say uh, not very fast and heart is very small, uh, but uh, to be able to really uh, analyze these automatically and be able to reconstruct a three-dimensional fully folded brain. Uh, wow. That is, uh, uh, my, my professor said, if you can do it, you graduate. And I was naive. Huh. I said, really, are you sure? He said, yes, it's very simple. Uh, stated, but it may take a long time. It took me five and a half years to do it. So I did it. Oh, wow. so, gotcha. Congratulations. Yeah. Wow. Um, I did have a, a brief tangential question. In, in like the late 90s, that was, that was kind of like when the internet was just be, becoming to just starting to become a big thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I have a lot of good stories, but just keep it simple for the audience. Because, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, there was a saying in Chinese that called ji bu ya sheng. I mean, the translation is hard, but basically say, the, the, the more tricks or skills you learn, the better off you are. In other mm -hmm. words, skills and, you know, skills you learn never burden. Any yeah. skills. It can be very simple. It can be complex. Um, it can be difficult, it can be easy. Um, so because I'm a tinker and, you know, I'm a maker, so I know how to fix a computer or, you know, going to look at operating system. And then I went to electrical and computer engineering. Uh, so it was more blending between CS and EE. Uh, but at the time, uh, my professor not only asked us, you know, to do the research, he also asked us to take different jobs. So I was actually the... Uh, we don't have a full-time, uh, how do you call the the, the uh, information techno technology, uh, uh, IT technician, so to speak, because we have a lot of sound workstation and later SPR workstation and a lot of, uh, 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 you know, terminals. And and often you have to, when user come, you have to create user, you know, back it up, upgrading opt-in system, build a new drive. So we don't have a, a technician. It was always a side job of a grad student. <laughs> so the previous question <laughs> who left, I was uh, in my second year, uh, and then he was, the professor was asking a volunteer in front of like 15 students, and I, I raised my hand, I'd love to do it. So, so long story short, so 
I really enjoyed doing that and while doing my PhD. And then when 1995-ish, I forgot it's one year off maybe, when the mosaic came out, right? Before the, and also the HTTPD, you know, that's the birth of the World Wide Web. It mm -hmm. was in beta form. And uh, so my professor was, uh, you know, very technology savvy. He said, Chen Yang, can you look at in creating a web page for a lab? So I huh. literally used the very first beta version of the web server and the client, and I built it up, put the web page on. So we were, I think we were among the first 10,000 pages ever on the web. What oh, I wow. would be no kidding. So uh, at that time, oh Yahoo was just a student page. <laughs> Google didn't exist. There was uh, and Walmart and uh, all the other e-commerce company don't even, I mean, commerce company, I'm sorry, brick and butter. They don't even know how to build a website. That was the later. So was Oh, my of, God. That's like the, the wild, wild west. Yeah. The WWW, you know, the it, it was it was fascinating. I was also just a little quirky thing I did on the side. I took a, about 10 hour, 15 hour side job at the Hopkins Press, uh, which is one of the oldest, uh, you know, and biggest university press. And they power a lot of journals and books, uh, not only for Hopkins, but other like 12 other universities. Um, so I became the assistant webmaster and I was doing the programming on the side. I actually built a journal subscription. I actually built their online bookstore. Uh, you know, and they used it for seven years, you know, until they switched to a more commercial version. So, wow. so and then they generated about a million dollars the first year. And I was looking at the log. I was uh, very proud. So, so it was really a wild, wild west. And it was That's really so fascinating cool. time. So. Yeah, I was curious. What was grad school like before the internet? I would say it's calmer, um, not so fragmented. I felt today there's a lot of advantage, a lot of convenience, right? You can connect friends thousand miles away, you can get a lot of information, know their life. But I actually, uh, on one side, I like the current life, but on the other side, I also like the old time because in that time, I think it's quieter, it's more calm. Uh, people yeah. rely on just uh, mostly face-to-face, -face, uh, mm. maybe a phone call. And, and the mail I sent to China to my parents would take three weeks to go there and three weeks to come back. So, so you can imagine, so you cannot, so, so it's a different time and uh, there is a quality to that. So, so you can be more focused to do things. Yeah, I, yeah. I did think it was a wonderful time to do a, a PhD research back then because I got to meet so many people uh, and learn so much. Um, so, so I was, um, I just thought, you know, these days, I think it's harder for today's generation to do it. Uh, because yeah. the skill set in, how do you block it out? How do you not constantly every minute looking at your Instagram or Spotify? Oh, yeah. As I saw my 16-year-old daughter I was watching and hmm. I was constantly attracted to that or just a social chat from friends. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. So we didn't need to learn that back then. <laughs> wow. It sounds it sounds quite nice. Yeah. You know, almost Although like a romanticized. I had a little mission. bit of addiction when World Wide Web showed up when I was building it in the night often. I was writing my thesis, you know, you know, I got this privilege. So I would just roam around the web at the beginning. It was so much information. It was a total explosion. I, I remember the first few months, I, I, I got so addicted, reading so many things. And I, that was a distraction. But eventually I said, if I continue to do that, I wouldn't finish my PhD. So I learned how to scale back and learn to be more focused and selective when what I read. And then while the web was, was, uh, was exploding. So, uh, so, so I kind of learned that the origin of the web start. So it was kind of interesting. How did people navigate the web before Google, before search engines? 
I would say the uh, that the beginning there was uh, always. Uh, I mean, I would say the first one was more Yahoo. The very very beginning was Yahoo. It's uh, they catalog catalog everything, mm -hmm. and then the search starts. Uh, back then, the search you know was a lot of them like Yahoo, Excite, Lycos, uh, AutoVista. You know, many uh, they are more taking what you use the searching basically uh, workstation or PC, uh, and then they were index and so it's very slow and it's not very accurate. Yeah. Uh, and then the, when Google came along, I think it was around 1999-ish, I forgot. Uh, and I remember the first day I was introduced to Google, it was by a, 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 a grad student from Turkey. And she came to me and said, Chen Yang. So I, I just finished my PhD. I stayed as a postdoc. She said, I found this uh, little search engine. It really worked. Uh, it's very quirky. It just has some shiny, colorful logo. and have one bar. And then you just hit the button if you're lucky. Is somehow the first one always is the correct. It's like magical. <laughs> and so that was Google. So I tried it because I searched a lot. It was like, often you, you have to through hundreds of pages sometimes, you know, sometimes you're lucky, maybe 20 pages to find the right one. But with Google, it's in, in previous search engines, in, in other search engines, you'd have to find in the other search engine, it's, it's, it's just indexed by keywords. And then oh. so you find a lot of information. It's not by page links, right? The, the mm -hmm. page voting. The page rank, famous page rank. So it was not giving you the information you want. For example, if you want to search warriors, right? It will give you all kinds of warriors, but not go to state warriors, right? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, so at particular time of the year, if warriors doing the, uh, you know, the NBA champion, I'm just an example. In Google, you will find Golden State Warriors, but in other, we give you all kinds of warriors, maybe Amazon warriors. So, yeah. so again, the Google has so many advantages. So it's just. Uh, and then that catch up, you know, in the university and then, and they never looked back, you know? <laughs> wow. That's, that's so great that your career kind of took off at the same time that the internet took off. So, so what, yeah. what happened after grad school, what, what um, postdoc and then what? Yeah. So you can see a theme, you know, I, I, I think one keyword in my whole life is, is fun, right? One word. I, I, I'm constantly looking for making whatever I do interesting, right? So and I think that led me. And then the second would be, I'm curious. I'm always curious what's next. So, so I was actually determined to be a professor, right? So that's why I stayed as postdoc. I became the very first person to stay as a postdoc because uh, that was 1999, January. That was still the dot-com yet to be bursted. In, in, if, if, in the double electrical engineering computer science, you find six-digit figure you know, salary in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley or in Boston or elsewhere. Uh, and all you go to university, but uh, nobody stay as a postdoc uh, unless you are in science. If you are biology, mm -hmm. if you're in uh, math, physics, yes, you have to do it because uh, it's a different. So I became the very first postdoc uh, who are, you know, we do have postdoc from others university, but we never had a postdoc from the same university because they all left. So uh, I could have made a lot of money, but I stayed on uh, and got, you know, not a lot of pay, but I enjoy the work. Uh, so. Part of that is really I want to be a professor. You know, I knew I, I came from England. You know, language is my English was my second, is still my second language. So I thought by honing my skills and continue to learn how to be a really a, a outstanding researcher, uh, it's very critical before I launch my uh, career as a professor. Uh, so I can get a shot into a top university. Uh, so I stayed as a PhD and research associate scientist for two years. Um, it was at that time there was something happened um, and uh, I, 
I was doubting if I want to be a professor because I was at the edge to, I, I think if that here apply, I would end up being a very good university and be an assistant professor. Because uh, you know, my paper, my citation, by then, you know, my reputation is kind of emerging. A lot of people knew we have done some very important work in both artificial, you know, computer vision, pattern recognition, some seminal work, as well as in green mapping, uh, MR imaging. Uh, but then I was doubting, I said, do I really want to be a professor? Because in those two years I invest in interact with a lot of professor um, and also industry people, I said, I want to be more applied. I want this to have an impact so that I can see uh, <laughs> immediately, you know, more quicker than, you know, let it run by others. And then maybe, you know, 10, 20 years later, it got applied. Uh, so, so I have some doubt, you know, and, uh, but that's also come back to my, seven-year-old story, you know, I'm a maker and think I like see results. <laughs> I like see it flying. I don't want to be just seeing a journal or paper people cite about it, you know, become intellectual pursuit. So long story short, so I, 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 I changed my mindset, you know, and basically ended up uh, applied for a corporate research job, R&D job, and Siemens, DE, et cetera. And there was a startup in Boston, so I got a few offers, but I thought uh, Siemens Corp Research was the leading one and Princeton, great location. Fantastic, uh, you know, so the biggest lab that has the most concentration of computer vision, image analysis, pattern recognition people who are working on medical imaging uh, and from all over the top labs around the world. So I thought that's fabulous. That sounds like great environment. So I got in and then because I got in, actually my two years at the university ended up helping me tremendously because I wasn't a fresh PhD. I was brought in as a more experienced scientist so I immediately become the technology leader for the uh, image segmentation fusion uh, thrust and then particularly the fusion side. Uh, and that really was also at another great time in intervention Im imaging, uh, minimal invasive surgery become hot in US and Europe. So we were at the onset of that. And then my experience at Hopkins uh, prepared me for that. Uh, so I ended up, I was able to lead that effort and co-founded the intervention imaging lab uh, at the program at Siemens Corporate Research. Uh, that really got us to the cutting edge of medicine and we call it the 21st century medicine and applying last generation computer vision back then into making a difference in people's life. And uh, it was fantastic. Yeah. And that was another month into time. Um, you know, uh, that's a whole new journey. Wow. That, that's so impressive. Wow. Um, and so from Siemens, uh, I guess... Could you talk a little bit about what you do now um, and kind of yeah, maybe sure. did we skip anything in between from Siemens? No, not really. I, you know, I just want to say, you know, uh, there was one thing, I think this is a good time to pause, you know, if we look at the career progression, uh, you know, one thing I have a odd hobby uh, came from my older brother. So I have an older brother who was five years older uh, and, and unfortunately he, he's always better than me on anything, but unfortunately he had a, uh, uh, incident, uh, his leg was infected when he was like uh, 13 year old, I was eight. And eventually, you know, his uh, one of his leg on the bottom has to be amputated. You know, there was a tragedy for the family. So he was lying on the bed for a year. Uh, and it was that time he read a lot of biographies and a lot of philosophy book uh, and uh, particular Western. Uh, so he has been a big influencer on me. Uh, and then, so I was always, uh, uh, you know, love to read biography, etc. Uh, so long story short, so I basically, when I meet professors, you know, or people who 
uh, have more experience, I always ask them about uh, career uh, advices, you know, life advices. Uh, there was one thing uh, really struck me was at uh, during my PhD uh, postdoc time, uh, we had a big uh, uh, computer integrated surgical center uh, grant uh, that was a $10 million grant from the government that Hopkins won together with the collaboration of uh, MP MIT, uh, Carnegie Mellon University, and Harvard. Uh, and so the robotic class that was led by no other than legendary uh, robotic researcher, uh, you know, Takio Kanidi. He was the director of the funding director of Robotic Institute at Carnegie Mellon. So every year he comes to uh, Hopkins twice because we have a big center convention. And then I, I was there to help with the computer sometime. And then so I asked him for advice, you know. He actually said he never, he said career, there's a lot of serendipity. Uh, he do, he mm. does not do career planning. Uh, because you don't know where you will be and you want to be open for opportunity. Um, but he said what he can do is career, uh, you know, uh, uh, thinking. So the thinking is, is a way to think about all possible outcome and also to think about the role model or people direction you want to go, not necessarily fixating, oh, next year I need to be mm -hmm. a leader here, next year I need to be a manager, then I want to be a startup, and then I want to be a CEO. You know, these very concrete things are hard to plan. But thinking is, you know, I really like entrepreneurship. I really like academic. You know, I really want to be in a leadership position, or I really want to be in the, uh, you know, the 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 uh, surgical robot space, right? Or I want to have some international experience, and because I like this and like that, so you constantly thinking about it, and so you kind of uh, begin to creating a picture of possible outcomes, and mm. that energy with you when you interact with people suddenly when those type of resource show up, you get curious, your eye light up, and then you begin to absorb those. And that will creating a, you know, a different energy field to help you navigate your career. You know, I felt I followed that advice very well. So I don't do career planning, I do the thinking, uh, ended up kind uh, of like visualizing. Uh, yeah, also realizing as well. Uh, I have been applying this also not to myself, but to many of people I, I have, you know, supervised or mentored. And they all have, I have to say, they all have wonderful outcomes. So I do, I'm very confident with this uh, little secret I learned from uh, the, 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 you know, Professor uh, Tech Kennedy, you know, from CMU. So, yeah. So that's one thing I just want to insert it for the audience. I thought it was very useful. So what was your, um, you know, applying his advice to your personal journey? Uh, what were the things that you were? Um, yeah. Or would you say the word is not visualizing, but uh, how, how, yeah, how did you a, describe it's a, it? It's a, it's a thinking. Thinking, or, career know, thinking. Think of the meditation, however you want to call it. Uh, but I just call it career thinking. You just need to be on your mind all the time. You know, yeah. make it a part of your life. Not to say, okay, now I have to find a job. Let me do a planning. Okay, and then maybe I work for a couple of years and then do another planning, right? And make it more like a big deal and then, and then find the steps, uh, which is very hard because there's so much serendipity and so much change. But when I applied his technique, it's, uh, you know, I knew I'm always very entrepreneurial. Uh, and I couldn't, you know, because I'm not a U.S. citizen, you know, uh, I was, uh, I needed to get a green card, you know, very pragmatically to stay in the country. And uh, back then, you know, because uh, medical imaging AI in China was very little. So, you know, there is no job for that. So I said, I'm going to stay here. Um, and then the second thing is, uh, so if I would uh, be an American citizen, I'm, I might already founded a company back in the late 90s after my PhD. But uh, instead, you know, I said, okay, let's find a you know, very top company and then continue to build some products. 
And meanwhile, you know, get my, uh, you know, green card uh, and then see where do, do I go. Uh, so that's one thing I know I want. The second thing, I always want new things, creating things, right? Things that never exist before. Uh, and so this is part of the innovation journey. Uh, so that's why uh, I knew I need to find, no matter university or, or company, I want to find a, 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 a place where their innovation is leading, right? You have a, a innovative environment, you have people uh, around you that can stimulate you. So that environment is very important, a supporting environment. And the last thing is uh, I knew uh, I, I, I really like the research aspect, you know, the, the discovering new knowledge and make it known to the mankind and the cutting edge. On the other side, I also like to apply the research that will make a new product, you know, or, you know, back then or new patents. Uh, and later, later that extended to make new companies. So uh, connecting to the entrepreneurship. So all these things, you know, I knew I want. And, and then also geographically, I knew I I grew up in a very cold place, but I don't want to ever live in a cold <laughs> place. So, so, so not like Boston would be out of the question. I had a startup job at Boston as a associate chief scientist, so I didn't take it. Um, but uh, Siemens Corporate said at Princeton, so you know that's that's manageable. Um, so, so I actually ended up uh, the Siemens Corporate research really fits that, you know. And I did my research. I have some uh, previous grad students who went there working. Uh, so I asked, and it kind of fits what I want. And they do a lot of cutting-edge research and product, and also do product, um, and then also have a global perspective because uh, Siemens is a you know a global company, but headquartered in Germany. Uh, so they do a lot of that, and they can continue in being encouraged publishing papers. So I thought that sounds like a very good balance point. So uh, and back then, my daughter, my my wife actually uh, is uh, uh, working at Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, Radiology Department. Uh, and so uh, she, you know, she and me, we said, if Princeton, we can commute. And because she was also finishing her master's degree. Uh, and so we want to stay a little bit closer. Um, and so long story short, so that career thinking lead me to a cutting edge lab at Siemens Copper Research. And that seems to combine some main aspects of my, uh, you know, competence and also my interest into one package. Uh, so, and that launched my career in Siemens. And that was a really fantastic uh, on hindsight, it actually worked out really well, you know, so, but, but. Great. Should, should we talk about uh, PV med and RSP sure. systems possibly? Yeah. So, so basically I was in Siemens for 17 years, right. And I was the head of intention imaging and we built a number of products and we partner with uh, large companies and startups and uh, which was fun. So I learned a lot indirectly or direct, in, you know, from a collaboration point of view. And then the then uh, that led to my uh, uh, the second the, the the last eight years of Siemens, which is the head of Siemens Venture, you know, the general manager of Siemens Technology Venture at Silicon Valley. Uh, so there we have looked at ten thousand startups. My team in a 10, period of ten thousand, yeah, in a oh period of eight years. Uh, That's uh, crazy. Really, all the new technology into not only healthcare but uh, uh, energy, you know, manufacturing, automation. Uh, and uh, city and infrastructure mobility. It's over a thousand a year, huh? Yeah, but if you think about, I have a, a, about a eight to ten directors. I have analysts, so uh, each one will look at about uh, uh, you know a hundred. Uh, you know, it's not a lot because uh, this is a different uh, thinking than people working in the company university. Uh, we have a funnel, uh, you know, to assess. So if you're looking at any venture capitalist, 
ten thousand for them is very manageable, you know. So, oh, okay. but for a lot of other people who may think, "Wow, that's mind-boggling," but uh, uh, but it's not. So, but anyhow, so that give us give me and my team exposure on how to apply new technology, emerging technology, to build cutting-edge technology companies that will make impact to the infrastructure of our life. Because Siemens is an infrastructure technology company, uh, and all aspects of our life. And so that was a uh, really really fascinating because the, for eight years i every meeting i have i you know i'm basically running meeting every week i'll be the 30 40 meetings a half an hour oh, to yeah. an hour and then i see each half an hour and an hour will be a different startup and different technology different application and it'll be whiteboarding there by my director or by entrepreneur from outside so every week i basically have the world of the future rebuilt a few times in front of me whether it's healthcare oh, that's kind of cool transportation, you know, mobility, it's really cool. So, and I, I really build a lot of know-how and learned a lot from these uh, interacting with these entrepreneurs and investors and my own team and also Siemens team, I'm a partner. So, so that really lead me to the post Siemens life, which led it to the PV Max. So. Do you have any, any insights or wisdom or, or thoughts, reflections to share about, you know, the 17 years talking to over 10,000 uh, um, companies. Uh... Yeah, so I myself uh, looked at 2,000, so I cannot, but my team together looked at 10,000. But, but I think the one thing is, uh, uh, there's this old saying, which is always true, practice make perfect. I think in life, it's always, right? You know, if you look at large volume uh, and repeat it again and again, you get good at it. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people find companies a bit mysterious, you know, and even if they join a few startups, you may still have the experience only with a few. But when you were able to look at, you know, 10,000 startups, for me, closely 2,000 over eight years span, you kind of get, and then be with them, growing with them. Some may not make it, some make it, some success, some succeeded, some not. And then it's also people, entrepreneur behind. And you begin to see the patterns. And, and one thing I think it's uh, helpful, it's, it's, it's a balance of focus. So I have been focusing on healthcare, let's see, for 30 years almost. But then in that eight years, I still have my healthcare, but I also have other, you know, a field added to that, you know, in the way I was conducting my job. Uh, so I think it's also healthy to leave or expand the, the horizon and see a bigger piece. For example, the industrial automation, uh, computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing, uh, it's really, really 20 years ahead of medicine. But that same methodology is being applied to the medicine on computer-aided design diagnosis, computer-aided surgery, uh, and therefore, or nowadays robotic-assisted surgery. And therefore, what you learn from the other field that happened for 20 years because they're dealing with things and now can be applied in medicine to mm. people. And, and therefore, there's so much wisdom you can gain and you can apply almost you have a crystal ball. And so therefore, yeah. um, you know, on one side, you need to have a focus lens to get things done at the highest quality, but also, you know, you can design a period of your life and to kind of go a little bit wider lens and expand or different, take a different job uh, and to broaden it. And then with that, uh, you know, really I learned about, uh, you know, the pattern of innovation. How do you take a technology to market? Uh, and what are the obstacles? What are the steps? What people do you need? What resource do you need? What are, you know, what are some successful patterns? What are some, you know, uh, failure patterns? And, and so, so that was the most useful thing. And so 
uh, it's 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 like uh, I learn from all these people around me, um, and uh, in the sense I'm managing that place, but in other sense I'm a student of all. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think that was tremendously helpful, and that gave me the confidence to after Siemens, you know, to really launch the PV mat, uh, you know, uh, and uh, apply what I learned to uh, back to you know uh, medicine medicine technology. Uh, and now focus back to what I always love. You know, it's the intersection of technology and medicine, in particular AI. Uh, so you almost felt I didn't plan the life this way, but <laughs> in the <laughs> end, it sounds like a plan. You know, it's like a full circle, uh, but yeah. a bigger canvas, right? So it's pretty exciting. It's a new AI and and you know bigger you know play fields because the original built it for US, Europe, then go to Asia and China. Now this company was funded. You know, technology. From China and then was go for the globe. Uh, so therefore, we you know on the cancer side, so we can really impact a lot more people and uh, and adoption a lot faster. And I get to learn about Chinese culture because I never worked a single day before because I left China when I was twenty three as a student. So so this is wow. also good to kind of connecting with uh, the China culture and uh, it's uh, rejuvenating at my age. You know. Yeah, let's talk more. Yeah, let's talk about um, PV Med or per- Perception sure. Vision. Ahmed, and I was wondering, you know, could you tell us the story behind the company, uh, kind of briefly for our listeners? It's a, uh, it's about, it's a radiation oncology company, I believe, uh, in China. Yes, yes, yeah, AI, it's an AI uh, cancer treatment company, technology company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has two product lines. One focused on radiation oncology, applying AI technology help to all the workflow of radiation oncology more accurate, faster, and better, and also uh, easier. So the uh, the the radiation oncologists, medical physicists, dosimetrists, and technician to really conduct that much more effectively. So that's one line of product. The second line of product is really on uh, AI cancer surgery, uh, minimal invasive surgery, where mm-hmm. we provide uh, uh, AI, you know, analyze the you know image uh, that could become the the guidance at the right time for surgeon to either locate a, a tumor or you know uh, uh, navigate to a tumor and or take out the tumor. So these are the two lines of the product uh, that we're building, but really we're an AI cancer uh, treatment technology company. Yeah. How did the company start? Yeah, uh, the, the, this is also interesting. You know, life is full of surprise. Um, the founder, this is a China technology uh, and the application that now is called Globe. But the founder actually uh, is a professor at Song Yixian University and has a junk uh, faculty at Song Yixian Cancer Hospital, um, and uh, so uh, you know Professor Yao Lu. Uh, so he, but he actually was trained. He has two PhDs: one in mathematics, one in applied math. And wow. uh, this guy is incredibly <laughs> smart. You know, one of the smartest wow. guy I ever met. He's ten years younger than me, but he got to you, you know my same undergraduate university as mine when he was fifteen year old. <laughs> you know, oh, what? I was like eighteen. That's crazy. Uh, but anyhow, so. Uh, so he had his PhD, a second PhD applied math uh, from US, uh, and uh, it was at Syracuse. Then he spent some time as a researcher at uh, Michigan University uh, on computer-aided diagnosis. Um, um, but then uh, about 10 years ago, uh, he went back to China, and then he saw the, uh, the cancer hospital was you know, uh, bothered because he was taking a relative or friend uh, to cancer hospital. It was like... Uh, pretty painful to watch how many cancer patients are struggling to get care. And many of them, you know, uh, are late stage, they were not diagnosed. And even if diagnosed, 
half of the cancer patients couldn't get the treatment because there's just not many doctors and machines. Uh, so it was uh, a pretty, you know, shocking experience for him. Uh, and he he basically, after seeing that, he felt, you know, uh, there was a calling. He wanted to go back to China and trying to get into the cancer field uh, on the treatment side. Uh, mm -hmm. And so he hasn't had the treatment uh, uh, research before. Uh, it was more on the diagnosis side and, and screening side. So he haven't had the opportunity to return to China and his wife supported him. Uh, so they moved back to Guangzhou uh, and then joined the Song Yixian University. He became a, a, a professor there. Uh, and then from there, he was looking for applications. And then there happened to be the Song Yixian Cancer Hospital is one of the top cancer hospitals in, the, in, in China and also in the world. Uh, and then he was basically find the collaborator on the uh, head and neck uh, cancer uh, radiation oncologist. And they said that oncologist said, actually, we took three, five hours, you know, for doctors to draw contour of organs and tumors. Uh, could you speed it up with AI? And that happened to be the, uh, that was 2000, that was 10 years ago. Um, and at that time, deep learning already started and et cetera. Uh, and so he uh, basically went into that research. And then obviously when 2015 AlphaGo uh, thing happened, it's a watershed event for the whole world, the technology field. Uh, and then there was a lot of investment coming in China. Uh, at that time, the investment in AI uh, rise up second behind the US, uh, but there was a lot of uh, chasing for uh, new AI technology applied to medicine and uh, you know autonomous driving, the transportation or retail. Uh, and so, so he basically was uh, uh, in that time, decided to form, found the company. It was uh, 2017. Uh, so he founded the company with his roommate, another, uh, alumni uh, and of uh, you know same university uh, and then only, they raised the 10 million IMB uh, angel fund uh, and there was a few people and then it was at that time I happened to be just left Siemens I went to China for a keynote you know AI medicine symposium international symposium uh, and that's when I met them and then they invited me to join the company I said I I, I have my daughter here doing the schooling uh, I can be on the board and uh, but I cannot join full-time so I kind of joined the part-time and be a managing partner uh, and then basically was uh, on the back, uh, helped them uh, for, the, for the first four years. And then the company has, uh, you know, grown quite well. But meanwhile, I have some other companies. I'm on the board in the U.S., healthcare AI company, uh, as well as some, you know, uh, other organizations like Hopkins BME department. I'm on the advisory board. And so, uh, uh, and um, uh, anyhow, so... Uh, the company last year has got an investment from Philips, uh, and then now it's seeing the expansion phase. Uh, the, the the two founders said, uh, you know, uh, you know, Chengyang, you know, uh, why don't you come over to lead the company? So I gave a lot of thought, but we have collaborated super well, and I've seen this is one area in radiation oncology and you know cancer surgery. AI can really make a huge difference, and mm -hmm. China is very hungry for that. But also the world, US, you know, also the everywhere needs you know, help on treating cancer. So I thought that would be wonderful. That's one that feels right, you know, come back from yeah. my career thinking. I've done that with uh, cardiac uh, hearts, you know, uh, patients and the cancer patients in Siemens before. Uh, but I thought this would be at a different scale, uh, different impact. So that's why I decided to, to, to join and lead that company. So. What is the uh, AI healthcare startup ecosystem like in China versus the US? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, I actually, uh, in the last five years, also I learned a great deal. And even when I was Siemens, uh, we have a strategy in connecting uh, Silicon Valley, uh, Europe, um, and uh, Silicon Valley lab, but, you know, and also China and Asia, the startup ecosystem, uh, because our job is connecting these startups and looking at technology can really help the, 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 the globe using the, the, the Siemens platform. Uh, so I kind of already knew a bit about the China ecosystem, but I learned a great deal after I left Siemens when I focusing doubling down on the you know the healthcare AI field. Uh, I have to say that uh, the two country, I mean U.S. and China, uh, obviously uh, you know if you're looking at uh, uh, venture capital investment, if you look at the number of startups uh, every year, uh, I would say for the last five, seven years even, uh, you know they are combined together about eighty percent of the world. You know the oh, wow. in the world, so it's oh definitely uh, ahead of uh, Europe uh, and other locations. Uh, so there are two biggest, and U.S. is slightly used to be far ahead of China, but in the last five five years, U.S. is uh, a bit ahead and uh, until two thousand nineteen, uh, and then China uh, fall back. Uh, and now I think the U.S. I didn't look at the latest data, but. I guess U.S. maybe 50%, China 30%. Uh, but at one point, it was very close. So, but anyhow, so, so there was just a lot of activities and uh, a lot of eagerness. And China, I think uh, there, if I, I mean, this is complex, but if I just simplify, I think in the healthcare AI, uh, maybe that's just like, let's pick four parameters to look at it. One is the abundance of data. China mm. here definitely way uh, outscore the U.S. Um, I give you an example. Uh, you know, the, the, the once at the conference, I learned uh, from a radiology chair from Stanford, he actually said a striking data said in China, the Tiantan Hospital in Beijing, which is a well-known uh, neuroimaging site for brain scan, the, the scan, the MR scan of the brain that that hospital producing one month is more than the total MR scan of the entire West Coast hospitals combined for a year. It's wow. unthinkable. Yes, wow. That's you cannot crazy. Even, you, it's crazy. You cannot even father that. How could that even be, right? Um, and he has quoted some other striking numbers. So, so certainly if you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, collecting data, uh, be able to, particularly AR era, it's all about data. It's a data era, right? And, uh, um, and in my time, you, you as an algorithm designer, you have to kind of learn anatomy, you have to learn the feature, you have to read the image, and then you design, you use the, your human neural network to build these your algorithms. human neural network, yeah, that's funny. But these days, you, you get the, the expert physician, they get the results, you feed it to the, the your advanced deep learning network, uh, and then you will learn it, right? And uh, so, so it's very different. So in this case, the data matters. Right and uh, and so therefore in China on the data side uh, definitely has a lot more and uh, it doesn't mean you can easily get it uh, you still have to follow the law there's a compliance China uh, this area has tightened and has standardized a lot more but nevertheless be able to get large amount of data if you have the resource and the uh, relationship with the hospitals and have the right uh, objective then it's a lot quicker and easier uh, to get vast amount of data. And so I think that is one thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing, if you look at the technology, I would say, uh, if you're looking at the fundamental technology, I still think the US and Europe is leading uh, and although the gap is shrinking. Uh, and, and so therefore uh, here you see a lot of uh, new invention of uh, you know, uh, 
you know, deep learning or other kind of learning algorithm, machine learning algorithm, um, and also the 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 ability to really rethinking about the you know technology paradigm and the whole technology stack. Fundamental innovation, I do think U.S. has huge advantage uh, over even Europe, um, mm -hmm. but Europe is very strong too because I have sponsored PhD students there. Uh, China on the other side is catching up; it's better. Uh, but still, I felt uh, uh, it's not as mature as the U.S. and Europe. But if you're looking at applied technology, how do you take a technology algorithm and apply to the real application and make a product out of that and then adopt that to a product and begin adopting in the hospital? This is where China nowadays, not old time, it's shining and it's actually a lot faster. Uh, part of the reason is uh, uh, in, in the, there's a lot of engineers in China, uh, you know, the China... Every year, the, 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 I don't have the number, but it's also very striking because this is a bigger population country. Uh, the quality of engineering is you know, getting better and better. Uh, so it's just a lot more engineers. And uh, uh, so, so the cost is lower. And, so, and then with all these technology become more commoditized. And so it's easier to... Hello. Uh, oh, hello. Yeah, yeah. It was oh. the, uh, my network has some problems. So uh, I think no, you're I think back, back now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'll just restart that pieces. You can cut it off. So basically, yeah. the applied uh, uh, technology side it's a lot quicker, and also I think the hospital side uh, regulatory it's very strong. You still have to get the uh, uh, the China FDA. It's called NMPA. Uh, you know, especially with treatment technology type three. So it takes a lot of time, but nevertheless, once you have that driving adoption in China, uh, it's a lot faster. Uh, so in the case of uh, auto countering for, uh, you know, cancer, uh, you know, like tumor in the radiation therapy side, uh, I did a comparative research. In U.S., uh, at the time for getting the FDA approval and China FDA approval, uh, the startups in both sides are about the same. You know, mm -hmm. China's about the same two, three years ago. Uh, but if you drive the adoption in U.S., we don't find any company have uh, driven the adoption to a, a large number of hospitals. You know, oh, no way. They have an implemented up. auto. Yeah. I, I guess yeah, for our exactly. listeners, so it's not contouring common. is just kind of yeah. briefly to explain. It's, yeah, but, but um, in China, uh, just my company alone, uh, last year we have reached 100 hospital deployment. Uh, and uh, uh, after a year, after I get the, the China FDA type 3, uh, and then now... Uh, you know, by the end of the year, we project we'll have 300 hospitals using our, you know, a uh, 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 product. Uh, and, wow. and the data, the patient service also growing at the exponential speed. Uh, so we, last year, we were at the end of year about, about 100,000 patients treated. And, and, and then the, just this morning, I got the data, it's 150,000 treated. And our projection is to be 200,000 patients by the end of the year. Uh, so wow. I think it's a very likable. And so if you are, basically, this is all clinical usage. It's not a research. Uh, it's paid. Uh, and then you are able to serve that large number of patients day in, day out around the country with so many hospitals by so many oncologists, uh, religious oncologists. Uh, that speed of innovation, that uh, maturity, uh, it's hard for U.S. and Europe to catch up in that particular narrow field, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just so, to kind of explain for our listeners, um, you know, what contouring is, like, I, yeah. I think yeah, not ahead. everyone might be familiar with radiation oncology, but, um, you know, when designing cancer treatment, you need to 
kind of circle where the tumor is or draw out where you're sending the radiation. Uh, and then it can be a pretty time consuming process because um, you have to go through slice by slice and draw it out. Um, and I didn't know that, uh, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on wh why do you think that deployment in the US and in Europe has been so lacking uh, or so slow? Yeah, I, I would say this is the two other parameters, right? You know, I think the, if you look at the uh, evolution of a country, uh, if the country is uh, very developed, right? You know, a lot of things, the standards, you know, everything is developed, uh, um, you know, and in that cases, people become, uh, go from be uh, more bold uh, to more conservative, right? Because there's a good reason in medicine to be conservative. It's a yeah. good thing, right? Because we have life of people online. But on one side, there's a degree. If the system is over time, overly move towards regulation, everything become very mm -hmm. conservative. Then for new innovation, it became bigger barriers and it just takes a lot of time. Um, and so uh, people are afraid, right, you know, to adopt it and uh, sometimes. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, the challenge. So therefore, I would say from a policy and from regulatory side, the third side, uh, US and Europe, um, you know, China is conservative, but on the other side, uh, uh, I would say the here is much more uh, tighter, uh, so therefore take longer time or money. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so that's one thing. The other thing, I just think the, it's just the country psyche. That's the fourth parameter, for lack of a better word. Yeah. In China, yeah, uh, it's a country that went through a rapid modernization. Uh, it was far behind US, Europe on the infrastructure for many years. Um, but in the last 20 years, you know, this rapid modernization, the entire country has got used to be a tech, you know, tech new country, you know, they, 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 they're unlike in US and Europe, although we like technology, but a lot of people don't like technology. We kind of see it more kind of balanced, so to speak, but in China, their, their life has improved tremendously, you know, because of the adoption of technology country widely, uh, you know, nowadays, obviously in China, you know, the high speed train you know, deliver of food way before U.S., you know, you can still get it any time of day, even like, you know, I can get a, 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 a toothpaste from a supermarket, just one, uh, it will be delivered to my uh, apartment in 30 minutes at midnight, uh, and I pay very little tips, you know, it's just, a, it's, it's just the whole thing is uh, mind-boggling, and also, you know, with all the mobile payment, of course, in U.S. now it's common, but China has been common for the last five, six years, and it's just very convenient. Uh, so, so I think that a lot of technology, they used to have a rapid cycle of adoption technologies, you know, things get obsolete quicker. So I guess as a country, the risk tolerance of the managing the confidence, the downside of technology are higher somehow. Oh, and so therefore the psyche of, they're not so afraid of tech, new technology. Uh, and then because there's also bigger pain points and eagerness, because, you know, US, you know, we have a better healthcare, we have more doctors per million patients, more machines for cancer patients, more clinics. And U.S., you just have one shift. Most of the hospital, it only work on the weekend. In China, it's two shifts, right? So on the same machine. And then even that, you know, they have to work all the way to midnight, get up in the morning. Uh, and there were just so many doctors uh, uh, around the machine. But that's not enough because there's way more patients. And as I said, so, so therefore, there's a bigger ping pong from uh, even country point of view, they encourage new technology adoption to really address this huge pain points and tension. So therefore, I think the country psyche towards technology adoption is fundamentally different. It's almost like the air you breathe. 
right? You know, yeah. uh, the tolerance of failure. I mean, Silicon Valley is one place where we see failure. And like, if you fail the startup, fine, come over. That's good experience. But if you fail that in Europe, you know, uh, good luck, right? <laughs> Find a nice <laughs> job, right? So, oh, so, really? so there's this, this uh, culture side, uh, uh, you know, it's very, you know, how do we view the technology? How do we view the risk? How do we view the failure? Uh, it's uh, very different. I do think that has an, uh, that's the biggest impact on the adoption of the technology. It's not everything's good, right? You know, you still need to take care of the downside, you know, and the risk. And this is where I, you know, was really come from the West side and then run the company. I'm always concerned, you know, the medical risk. So we need to make sure while we want to be fast, we also need to take care of that aspect. And, uh, but if some company were just going for fast, going for revenue, driving adoption, taking advantage of that, but then the product's not very safe, and then you can create medical uh, risks, uh, or even people may die from the technology. Then that is a big, big problem. And then I do think that could be a likely outcome if that's not done carefully when the AI applied. Yeah, I was wondering, have you noticed any examples of you know potential downsides of implementing too quickly? Um... Yeah, you know, one thing is interesting, right? You know, when I talk to a lot of radiology, uh, radio, radiation oncology uh, uh, department chairman, uh, they all said we need help. But some of the, some of the chairman on the, what they call the, not the tier one city, tier two or three, uh, they have a lesser patients. Their number one worry is they said, yeah, this is all very good, right? You know, it's more efficient, quicker. But I'm worried that my, British oncologists get too lazy. Huh. You have a laziness detector, meaning they, they use the AI, it works like almost like a equivalent to a middle experienced doctor from a tier one hospital. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then they say, oh, it looks good. And then and you get used to it, right? And then they don't check it very carefully. Uh, ah. and, and that's something, you know, AI cannot be 100% accurate. You know, yeah. what if when it's not working well, you really have now follow that with a plan to try to target that with strong you know cell killing radiation that can be very damaging uh it could have a medical incident or accident so therefore uh, the the chairman there said you know king you know rather than in, enforce a policy of using it he said can you use ai also detect when they haven't reviewed the cases ah, in some pieces. Funny. And then, so send the report to me, right? So I know <laughs> the safe they use, right? So, so there's, uh, this is just one of the many examples, right? And, yeah. uh, um, but, 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 but I, I do think uh, this is a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, ironic. Uh, I, I laugh about it, but there's truth to that. But also I would say validation is very important in medicine because yeah. uh, we do, whether it's you are doctors, you know, you are a doctor, you know, I'm a technologist helping doctors like you. We all have a common mission is we want to make sure patients are safe while we're saving their lives. And, and so we should never let unsafe technology get into the hands of uh, doctors and patients. And so we take a great pride in that. And so how do we do that? It's validation and clinical validation. And so that's the part I would say uh, really uh, it's not only China, but US and uh, Europe everywhere. When we develop new technology, you know, it doesn't matter if it's AI or not, uh, that we need to need design strong, uh, trustworthy validation. Uh, I know validation costs a lot of money, but we can design it cleverly so it's cost effective, but it does need to show effective validation mm -hmm. uh, before we let it into the market. I do think that's a, 
that's a part that's a more often a dark side and people outside in the community not know. Um, uh, but you know, but that cannot be taking shortcut. And uh, every uh, leaders or uh, you know founders of medtech company know that it's important. But we need to find a more efficient, effective way to do that. Yeah, uh, this might be kind of a, a secret sauce question, but I was wondering, do you guys prospectively validate? your models um, or do, do the models change, um, you know, with, as it's pro like, do you like, you know, as, as it's performing? Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I would say in a medical site, uh, uh, you, even the learning can adapt by taking more data and get better. For example, in, you know, uh, you know, when we use Siri or using the echo um, or, you know, other types of recommendation from Netflix, Amazon, they were constantly doing online adaptation, and that's fine. But in the medical side, no. Uh, you basically, yeah. uh, you, 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 you build your learning algorithm, and then you show the performance on, just like the old method, uh, on a batch of data, a cohort, and you show its effectiveness, and you freeze it, and then you ship it. Now, hmm. even though the, 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 the algorithm can learn from the data, but it still need to follow a release process, right? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And so therefore, but obviously incremental release become a lot faster, but you just cannot let it run wild and just uh, learn there and then be used. And then because who is going to take on the risk? If what if the data was fed wrong and then yeah. they learned wrong, right? So, 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 so I would say this is a challenge uh, worldwide for machine learning application to the medicine. How do we uh, handle online adaptation uh, in a, safe and effective way and, mm -hmm. and harvest the power of it. Uh, and right now, I do not think there's universal consensus. The regulatory is uh, more on the, you know, rather be on the conservative side, on the safety side yeah. than trying yeah. to be aggressive. So I think this is one still one area. Uh, there's a lot of activity, but there is no answer. But for now, we have to kind of uh, always has to have a release cycle. Yeah. Mm. That does take me to my next question. Um, and I guess briefly before I go on to that, I, I can kind of see, you, you know, both ways being good and bad, you know, because if you don't change it and you kind of have that static, you know, yeah. how you shift it, it's possible yeah. that, you know, with changes in MRI machines or, you know, somehow the data that's fed into it changes yeah. that could decrease performance. But if you, if you train it on this incoming yeah. data, yeah. It, it could kind of go, you know, in a direction that you weren't expecting. Um, and then my next question is, well, what do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I, I love science fiction ever since when I was a child. And uh, I'm kind of, a, I, you know, I've just watched a lot of science fiction movies. I used to read books, but no, no longer, or, or TVs. Uh, but still, it's very hard to predict the future. Everything is just a potential scenario. But certainly, you know, as I said, when I was at Siemens Tech Venture, right, uh, that in that eight years, every week I have like 40 hours and then I have these entrepreneurs, smart innovators, you know, in front of me or my directors or my analysts to draw on the whiteboard of a future, a small case of a future scenario of the society. And then when you look enough and then combine and you begin to develop some future science, right? How do you science the future now, right? So, so I would say, yeah, medicine, I'll give some talk on that uh, in the future. Uh, I would say... Uh, if you want to go storytelling, certainly, uh, I don't think, I'm certainly not on the camp of AI would replace doctors. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Jeffrey Hinton, the, the, the father of the deep learning, uh, famously said five, six years ago that uh, at Stanford, in fact, 
that uh, warned all these radiologists you shouldn't study radiologists because five years from now you will not have a job because uh, AI will take over the job. I, you know, for those who are in the field, particularly for us, you know, we work on the intersection of AI and radiology uh, or medical imaging. Uh, we knew it wouldn't be the case, and uh, uh, it didn't happen. I don't think it will happen in the next ten years, twenty years. Uh, it's just some of the tasks of the radiologists will be, or radiation oncologists or other doctors will be automated, taken away. Uh, but the doctors will always have a lot more things to be done. Uh, we always evolve on that. So I, I really don't believe that will be the case. And also there's a liability in medicine, unlike autonomous driving. Uh, and, you know, if machine, you know, misdiagnose or even have a malpractice killing a patient during the surgery, who's going to take liability? You know, there's a lot of ethical questions and insurance. And so, therefore, I don't think that would be the case. However, I will—I actually said that in the keynote where I ended up uh, connected to the PV Med funders and joined them when there were few people. I actually said back then, even uh, is uh, the physician plus AI will replace physician without AI. That's that for sense. sure. That's yeah. for sure. I said that, that five sense. years ago when I was still debating. But now I think uh, more and more people are starting to see this. I see that happening already. Right. So. So, and therefore, uh, I would say, and I'm on the board of uh, BME department of Hopkins, and Hopkins actually have a machine learning for physician and actually open up for med students, you know, and or even resident physician. So I do think that's fantastic because the, the future physician, uh, just like 20, 30 years ago, uh, need to know a bit about computer, how to use it. And now I do think it's, it's especially for you, you know, you're, you know, uh, finishing our MD and then, you know, for some residents, MD, be able to educate yourself about uh, machine learning, right? Go course era to take it, you know, a course oh, on yeah. the side or read a book, right? You know, just, you know, just absorb, you know, yourself deeply into that. There was one book I highly recommend is uh, Deep, uh, I think it was called Deep Medicine uh, and, uh, you know, Eric Popo, uh, it was a fantastic oh, book. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, and it's really written by one of the foremost famous physicians who also have looked at the deep learning, machine learning impact, put together in a very digestible format by the medical professional community. So, uh, but in any case, I do think, uh, uh, you know, reading a book, listening to Audible, YouTube while you're on treadmill, just be safe. So I do think that education or take the courses online or, you know, et cetera, extremely important uh, to, you don't need to be expert, you know, like a machine learning programmer. Uh, that's not the goal. But you need to know enough, understand this technology, how you can harvest that to help the medicine. And when later you are given the tool, you can use more responsibly. And some of them, they may even go invent some new use cases. And then when they engage with these future machine learning scientists, engineers, uh, they will be able to have a more seamless communication in inventing new uh, technique, new methods that will create in the future of medicine. So I think that's more, it doesn't answer 10 years from now, but at least you can do that. Uh, but then, because of the internet, it's people creating the future, it's in our mind. But I do think <laughs> in the future, if we look backward, if we get that out of the way, is I think the AI has three new things uh, will transform the medicine. One is uh, it will be streamlined. AI would make the future medicine much more streamlined. What do I mean by that? Why it's new? It's always there, right? No, because if you look at the healthcare of today, I mean, the US, I think was a trillion healthcare spending, and then there was a study a few years ago from McKinsey or somewhere said uh, a quarter of that is waste. Why? Because in healthcare, it's, uh, it's not one gigantic industry, it's many silos, because there's a decision to be made responsibly to take care of the, the patient, their information, their privacy. So there's constant regulatory 
you know, control point, decision point that has to be run by humans. Now, with the machine learning these days, they can learn that better. Many of these decision points used to be a choke point can be connected. So you have thousands of silos in the healthcare system can be chained to lesser silos. And mm -hmm. therefore you finally, because all the past technology cannot make decision, right? And it can only analyze, but today on um, safer application, not treatment diagnosis, but for workflow, many other cases, oh, yeah. billing, et cetera. Uh, yeah. You know, you can actually have the machine learning to make decision based on the data, right? And yeah. then you can do a simple approval. So it will streamline the healthcare tremendously uh, with also the digital health and AI in the next 10, 20 years. I, I, you would see the healthcare system will become a lot more streamlined. So with AI can begin to connecting decision point. The other thing is the, the part of, uh, you know, there are many other parts you can streamline, like you can robots, right? Roaming around in the hospital. Uh, in deliver things, you know, streamline <laughs> things. That's also the extension of AI to smart machine. Uh, and they can even autonomous going around. And in China, you have robots regularly roaming around in the, in the hotel. You know, I have delivery of a robot taking out of the come to me. And so it's happening every day, wow. right, in there. Uh, so, so I think that could be the streamlined aspect. There's so many dimensions. The other one is really about uh, uh, distributed. The healthcare will be a lot more distributed. What do I mean by that? By It's not about AI. You know, even though I talked about it. And Siemens, I have dabbled on all kinds of emerging technology. It's really AR plus, AR as the intelligent orchestra, right? Of the brain of this uh, connected world, connected healthcare world. And you have IOTs, wearable sensor, you have, uh, uh, you know, drones, right? Which can deliver, you know, critical medical supply in 30, less than 30 minutes uh, to a critical area. I'm on, uh, you know, I, you know, one company in Silicon Valley called Zipline, it was a Hopkins alumni, and they deliver a lot of blood supply in Africa in less than 30 minutes to drone. So, so you can really looking at the healthcare in hospital, healthcare in the field, healthcare at home, uh, and all these can be connected by technologies, right? You know, you know, information technology, intelligent technology, or smart machines uh, in air, you know, uh, on the road, you know, in the building, and and then therefore, and also the localization become much much accurate. So you can do indoor GPS and go to locations. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. all these, if you put them together, you can imagine the future will be more distributed. We actually talk about the healthcare 2.0 is for hundreds of years, healthcare is centralized towards hospital. And now with all these new technology, you know, with wearable technology 2.0, and now we can have these wearable uh, on the verge of reading your blood pressure, you know, checking your glucose, you know, checking your temperature, your heart beating, and then the AI will monitor 24 seven and then detect the abdominal event and send to doctors, you know, nurses, right? So all these things, it's kind of confusing on one side, but on the other side, we have so much power at our fingertip. I do think they will be harmonized and so that there will be a lot more information at home because how long we can stay in the hospital, even for critical disease, unless we stay there. And doctor only see a facade of a small part of people's life. Yeah. But at home, you know, if, you know, Stanford had a, a project on having a toilet, smart toilet can take a lot of your stool or urine samples and, and really know what's going on, right? So, so you really can see, and also there's project on nutrition side. So you can put all these together. So there's more information at home uh, with you 24 seven than at the hospital. And therefore connecting the hospital and home, like telemedicine, home care, uh, smart play, you know, through a combination collaboration of technology and people. We always have physician in the middle and it's, a lot of exciting area for uh, you know innovation.
but also in the field, battlefield, or could be remote area, you know, when they have care, how do you carry them quickly rather than have to rush them to hundreds of kilometers or miles, right? So distributed is a big theme, you know, with this intelligent technology in the next 10 years will transform. You can imagine many use cases. You can basically, you know, could be a farmer suddenly get hurt and then a heart attack rather than has to be helicopter to, uh, you know, a few hours or an hour to a nearby place and lose the critical time or stroke. Uh, and maybe a drone can come in and do an imaging and can remotely operate, you know, uh, mm -hmm. using a robotic arm and then take out the risk factor. Then maybe uh, the, the uh, autonomous driving medical car will come uh, and then the robot doctor together with real doctor sitting a thousand miles away can help finish the surgery and then next day recover, right? So, so there's just uh, all kinds of possibilities you can imagine. The last one is the most interesting one. Uh, it's... The two other one, the streamlined and distributed, it's, it has some new capabilities, but there's also done before. The last one I call the predictive dimension. Mm. The prediction, even though we have prediction of weather, but in healthcare, uh, I would say a lot of traditional statistical method prediction, uh, it's limited because it's very complex, right? And also, uh, you know, but these days you can combine, uh, you know, medical imaging data, you know, their uh, healthcare data, genomic data, uh, you can begin to predict the, the you know, likelihood of a patient to have disease or you know, how effective the treatment will be responded, right? This predictive aspect is what the new AI, the new learning, machine learning is quite powerful. And when you feed enough data, the prediction will become a lot better. And it's these places, I think we'll see applications in healthcare we cannot even imagine before. You know, some are emerging, right? For example, I was on a startup in a uh, uh, board, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. And they basically uh, two years ago got uh, Microsoft uh, Machine Learning Award on the healthcare space. Uh, and uh, um, they basically can use the camera, but in this case, it's a, a camera that is not a IGB camera, it's a range camera, so you, you can protect the privacy. But they basically could uh, look at the patterns and feed a lot of data. You can predict the acute patient fall two minutes before it even happened, and then have the nurse to intervene to predict that happen. It's like a minority report, that famous movie huh. by huh. Tom Cruise and Stephen yeah, Paper, yeah, yeah. but applied in the healthcare space. And this huh. scenario can happen in many, many cases. In the, it was a camera, you said? It's a, it's a smart camera powered by uh, you know, a predictive computer vision method wow. that can predict falling two minutes before it happened. So the intervention can happen. <laughs> it's like, like minority past, report. You, de you detect it when it's happening. It already happened. You just have to save it on time. So that prevent less injury. Like this is death. a minority report. Exactly. Yeah, wow. exactly. So I was on the board for two years. It was really mind-boggling. And it's been deployed in a number of hospitals and get fantastic results, right? So, so the point is, you can imagine this goes to the hospitals, different, you know, wards, right? And then go to the field for the home. I mean, it's, you know, a pilot technology at home, prevention for elderly people, right? You know, so it's just, uh, you could imagine the predictive scenario who gave you cases you couldn't even imagine. Or when you listen to it, you would say, wow, can you do that, right? It's just like that response. So those applications are hard to imagine, but it's incredibly exciting. Uh, you know, so if you combine all three, streamlined, distributed, and predictive, and some of the cases I gave, now you suddenly you could think about, right, how would the future 10 years go from now? It's, uh, it's going to be really, really different for sure. I do think the transformation is happening now, it's real. Although you know, we always say healthcare is the slowest uh, evolved industry. Uh, you know, we're still using fax machine. The last fifty years, <laughs> you know, every year and next ten year will be transformative. 
And then at the end of 10 years, they said the next 10 years, which I thought, but not last 10 years. It happened five times. Uh, for me, it's like three times. Uh, it's very slow. But I do think uh, now with AI and all the other technology, uh, it's coming. And I do think next 10 years, we'll see healthcare be one of a uh, field that filled with a lot of unimaginable, imaginable innovation that truly helps patients, helps the healthcare, helps the doctors. But in the end, it uh, has to be responsible innovation in particular in healthcare that, you know, safe. And uh, we have to figure out better way to validate, collect data, and deploy. And this requires uh, a collaboration I call the 4P, right? Uh, the, the one P is the patient. The second P is the physician. The third P is the provider. And the fourth P is the policy. And so mm. all these four P's need to be innovated, adapted to the new era of uh, a transformed healthcare you know, of the future. Wow. Wow, that was so inspiring. Wow. Um, we do have la three last questions. You know, these are kind of more personal questions that uh, I like to ask every sure. guest. Um, and I kind of already have a feeling of what you might say, but the three questions are, number one, what brings you joy? Number two, what gives your life meaning? And number three, what are your greatest fears? And okay. in any order, you can answer those. Yeah, I'll keep it short because uh, uh, I think we talked a lot. It's fun. So, um, what give me joy? I, I would say uh, joy come from I see what I did matters uh, to the society, to the people uh, that whatever I delivered, you know, that that helped them. You know, be it the doctors, be it the physician, be it the. Oh, I I, I remember. Uh, uh, you know, there were many joyful moments. The one joyful moment is uh, back in. I still remember it was 2005. Uh, I was the uh, head of, I, I basically led the team, did the, uh, 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 you know, uh, computer vision uh, imaging guided atrial fibrillation uh, product for Johnson Johnson. Um, and so it was the first commercial system in the world. And you can get a customized height definition uh, uh, heart uh, model, 3D model of the patient and from CTMR, and then they can use the caster going doctor and do the ablation and eventually treat the uh, arrhythmia, uh, the irregular heart beating. So when we had a clinical trial uh, before we launched it, it was at Nuremberg Airport. I met a, a new product manager from Johnson Johnson. Uh, and uh, she said she just came back from a place where they, there was a, a Florida, there was a, a widow. Uh, she's in her late 60s. And she came to them um, actually uh, thank all the Johnson Johnson people that they saved her life. And then she basically shared the story, I keep it short here, is that she had atrial fibrillation for a long time and because she's a widow and she was alone many times, but she has uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, a number of children and many, many grandchildren and her regular life with them are constantly interrupted uh, because of atrial fibrillation, you know, uh, often the family engagement interaction with her last one has to be stopped and then has to care for her own heart problem, heart disease. After that treatment, she completely free of symptom and she's for the first time in many years, she could be free and she has been uh, having all kinds of uh, family event trips, uh, meeting her you know, loved ones and grandchildren for the last uh, month or two and never had an episode. And she just, uh, she was in here when she thanked everybody and then everybody was really, really uh, uh, you know, you know, just, you know, we all moved. And she told me the story, you know, I know that was a product we have labored for a few years and we launched together as a collaborative effort. Uh, she's new. She wasn't involved in the early, but she was just arrived like a few weeks 
but she, I saw there was tears and there was sparkling in her eye and there's a proud. And I, I, I was crying actually. I have tears also when I, even today when I talk about it. Um, it's just like, you know, uh, and there are many, many stories like that that came to me, you know, from different information. It's people's life really changed uh, and their loved ones because of the clever effort you have. And that, that brings great joy. And that's what I call the, 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 the impact. Mm. And, and another one is like meaning, like meaning. I think the meaning and joy, these two are kind of together. Uh, yeah. But on the meaning side, I was basically back to my childhood. You know, I like adventure. I like to be curious. I like innovation. So meaning for me is really always looking for new ways uh, to help uh, the cause, right? Whatever the mission you're looking for. In my case, it's healthcare. Uh, you know, we're in search of a new therapy method, uh, whether it's technology or people. Uh, but we want to make sure, uh, you know, this new method uh, that is better than the state of art, much, much better, and that can help significantly large number of people. And so I actually uh, help, you know, my work and with my collaborators at Siemens and G&J, we helped, uh, you know, over a million heart patients, right, recover from the atrial fibrillation. But uh, now I'm on a mission, you know, to go for over 10 million cancer patients in the next decade, mm. right? Wow. So, uh, so from that perspective, you know, we are, uh, we reached 150,000. <laughs> That's still a long way to go, but given our exponential growth and uh, you know the the trajectory, uh, I would uh, be you know really really joyful, and I do think we have a shot in reaching 10 million patients worldwide. Um, and when that day happens, you know that would make uh, the meaning come true. So, and then the last one was fear. Yeah, oh, my biggest fear is. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I actually gave this talk at Hopkins uh, about fear. <laughs> That's uh, uh, I when I was working on the atrial fibrillation project, uh, I was leading it. Um, initially, it was just one person, and then become you know a group and etc. Uh, but for three years, when I was developing that product, simultaneously research, um, it, it was I was constantly living in fear because that was the first time I was lead put on a driver's seat and leading a a product that will not just a reading a pictures and telling doctor what you see is actually guiding you're building a, a a navigation map of the heart that doctor would allow doctor to entrust it to navigate their car which is the caster and deliver ablation which is burning power to wow. you know to the heart it's incredible responsibility what if my map gps map is wrong what if my fusion of the map is the car the caster was wrong off like uh you know a, a few millimeters with a beating heart. I mean, this is like as hard as landing uh, uh, on the moon, right? You yeah, know? yeah. So I was very scared. I wasn't sure we can make it, right? And uh, uh, so I was constantly living in fear for three years. And But that fear become a force to drive because uh, I was fearful if in the end hurt patients or kill patients. But also I was fearful if that happened, it ruined the reputation of all the, like Johnson Johnson and Siemens, right? It became a major headline news. And I'm fearful it will impact uh, my department, myself, right? You know, it's an honor, right? You have to do things, you have to take that seriously. But that fear turned into a relentless pursuit of quality. So mm. in those three years, particularly the first year, I see my wife only one hour a day before sleep. It's not recommended. It's not good for the <laughs> health. It's not realistic for, good for the relationship. Uh, but it lasted for a year, right? And uh, without even the vacation, the following weekend. But uh, 
but we we basically are making sure everything every respect are taken care you know code and, you know installation doctor but you know three years later we launched it it was very successful uh, it was actually j and j considered as the most successful product launching that bu in their history and we actually have a maintenance contract that fixing bugs we didn't have any bugs in the next three years which is unheard oh, wow. of i have to say it's obviously software have bugs no not for that uh ended up we're collecting maintenance contract hiring for researchers to do the new products uh rather than fixing the old one but it's just how much if you really care you take relentless care you can do it but when i said that a lot of people didn't believe it because i i i my undergraduate is computer science so i said i know it may sound impossible but you can try uh and, and so i think sometimes you have to think bold and big and you know put the first principle is what really matters in the end it's not how difficult you are doing it matters it's the safety of the patient it's the accuracy the you know efficiency of the doctor that cannot be compromised and then you have to work backwards not the forward to compromise so so that 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 was the biggest fear i have you know so i um you know you have to care the outcome and you have to be fearful of the outcome and turn that into the driving force behind thank you so much chenyang this was such a inspiring interview i wow you know i'm really excited to share this with our listeners um and and thank you so much thank you for inviting me david uh, it's my pleasure uh, to to really share these uh, stories and thoughts with you and your audience uh, and i really appreciate it. i think you have a certainly curated uh, a very unique list of questions and uh, get uh, many of the things i do i personally have a lot of passion on and uh, i really appreciate it. i really enjoy this conversation thank you